We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. think they know Tubman. Did you know that Harriet Tubman actually served in the military, was the first woman to lead an armed expedition? It's left out of the story. When she goes down to South Carolina, still a fugitive technically, she is asked by the governor of Massachusetts, how about you go down and help the Union troops? She agrees to do it. She goes down to South Carolina with the intention of being a scout and a spy. And she gathered information, of course, from enslaved and free black people in South Carolina, enough so that in June of 1863, she leads the Kambahi River Raid. This is a sort of important victory for the Union. But it's also important because it's a moment when Tubman literally emancipates between seven and 800 people. Harriet Tubman is one of the most extraordinary people in American history. In the 1800s, at a time when many people were debating whether or not Americans should be able to own and sell people, Tubman was running up on plantations, grabbing enslaved people, and whisking them up north to freedom. I watched a recent biopic about her called Harriet. It's so powerful. And I was so moved that I almost cried during the montage when she was walking in with group after group of freed slaves, people she had rescued with her guts, guile, ingenuity, strength, courage, her knowledge of how to get from the South to the North undiscovered, and her deep faith in God. Harriet, who almost made it onto the $20 bill until Trump said, nope, is a well-known figure, but there's a lot people don't know about her. During the Civil War, she was a spy for the Union Army who led a raid that freed over 700 people in one night. She's an amazing woman who seems like a superhero plus Olympic decathlete-level athlete plus Mensa-level genius who could lead all these missions, freeing all these people and never losing one. 
She was a woman of deep faith who relied on God and gave all the glory to him. I learned that and much more from Rutgers professor Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who wrote the new book, She Came to Slay, based on her teaching Tubman for years. If you want to know everything about one of the most inspiring and important Americans ever, this is a good place to start. It's Professor Erica Armstrong Dunbar talking about the amazing Harriet Tubman on Torre Show. Why did you want to write a book about Harriet Tubman now? Well, it actually wasn't... I, I wasn't sort of sitting with this... I want to write a book about Tubman. I I teach Tubman. I've taught Tubman for years. All of my work focuses on black women, enslaved women in particular, but enslaved and free. And so my editor, Dawn Davis, who is fantastic. And she, you know, was um, connected with um, Deborah Martin Chase and others who we knew the film was going to be coming out. And she said, Erica, what do you think about doing something that is accessible, is biographical, is um, also aesthetically interesting, and to have it come out around the time of the film? And I was like, well, I just wrote a book about a fugitive woman, um, and that fits in my wheelhouse, and I know a lot about Tubman, so okay. And then it was sort of up to me to sort of think about how I wanted to modernize Tubman, how I wanted to bring someone who we think about as someone who lived a long time ago and bring her, make her more current, modern, um, connect to her. And I, I, you know, I sort of remind my students, I remind people that, Tubman lived a really long life and she died in 1913. Like she died in the 20th century. So although she was enslaved, like, you know, my grandmother was alive in 1913. Right. So um, that was really, that was sort of the beginning of thinking about writing about Tubman. And then it was up to me to figure out how to make her someone that 19 year olds would want to know about. Well, let's try to at least first make her a little more real. From the research that you've done, Mm -hmm. what sort of person was she? Like, if we were to meet her, what would she be like? What would the, what would she be like? You know, I think Tubman was like most people in that she changed over time. Sure. Right? And I think... We're used to seeing an image of Tubman, an older woman, head covered, not smiling, hand, never smiling, hands clasped, um, and that's the image that we've often used teaching Tubman in high school or Sunday school. Is she not smiling because the and the photography of the time? It took a long time, so you didn't smile. Or is it because she was bitter and tough and... Or maybe all of the above. I, I, I think 
Photography in the 19th century, people did not smile. That's a very 20th century, you know, cheese. That's the 20th century. Um, 19th century, people were not smiling for, especially for these formal photographs. Photography doesn't become kind of super popular until the middle of the of the 19th century. The other piece, though, is that Tubman... She had some dental issues as well, as most people did in the 19th century. Um, And it actually just wasn't sort of seen as respectable to do anything else but kind of have this um, sincere, solemn look. So we should not take that as evidence of her personality. I think we can take it as evidence of her seriousness because... The one thing that I think runs true for her throughout her lifetime was that she was sort of about the business. Definitely. I mean, from I, from I, day one. I'm like, is she a bitter person or is she an optimistic person? She was deeply optimistic. And the optimism was centered in her religion. Mm. She was a very religious woman. Um, and she really attributed her time on the Underground Railroad as, and her success on the Underground Railroad, she attributed all of that to God. She never took credit, like, yeah, I went 13 times to Maryland and rescued people from the jaws of slavery. It was never her. She was an instrument of God. So she was optimistic. There was a moment in her life prior to the Civil War, and she's having sort of conversations with other abolitionist activists who are saying, you know, slavery is never going to end. That's never going to happen here. We're going to have to leave this nation. And Tubman responds, it's not true. I've seen it. She had these visions. I've seen it. Our people will be free. And she carried that optimism even after the war after slavery was abolished and life was really difficult for black people. She still held on to that optimism. I mean, there's a tremendous selflessness in, I have gotten my body to freedom. I'm going to go back and again and again and risking life and limb and who knows what. And I mean, right. I mean, that's, I mean, it's an extraordinary gesture. Yeah. It's, it's almost unbelievable. Mm-hmm. She, you know, Harriet Tubman never learned to read or write. And, but she did sort of tell her story, her memoir, um, to uh, a novelist later on in her life. And she talks about the first moment that she escapes in 1849 when she makes it to the Pennsylvania border. And you would think that this moment, you know, here's this woman who has lived through some of the most tragic, traumatic difficulties of slavery. And you'd think, okay, here she is walking into Pennsylvania, a a free, and I'll use air quotes on that, free state, right? And she almost immediately thought and asked for more, meaning... This isn't enough for me to be free. It isn't enough for my body to be free. What does freedom mean if my entire family is still enslaved? Mm -hmm. What does freedom mean if I enter into a city like Philadelphia and I know no one? 
And it's not enough for me to be free. My freedom doesn't matter if everyone I love is still enslaved. And really from that moment, she makes this decision, a very conscious decision to go back and get all of them. And what is so incredible, almost unbelievable, is that she does it. Mm. Yeah. She seems superhuman. Yeah. And the... I'm not going to ask you to compare the movie to reality, but the movie does, again, put up this notion of this is a superhuman person who is traversing many, many, many miles over and over at night in the winter. And I mean, is she superhuman? (laughs) (laughs) And more specifically, can you be specific about how did she make it, you know, from the South to the North and back, like what physically is she doing to be able to make it and not get caught and to have enough food for the body to be able to go on in these super long journeys and all of that? Yeah. I think, you know, when you, when you think about the totality of it, you can't help but think, okay, is she a little superhuman? How, how different is, uh, or was Harriet Tubman and, yeah, she, she, you know, I, I'm also, I'm hesitant to categorize her as such because I do think black women in particular are um, thought of as almost superhuman, right? Sure. That they, that we don't feel pain the same kinds of ways, yep. that we um, can carry burdens and work and, um, and that we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um And so there's a little bit of that that kind of seeps over into the Harriet Tubman narrative. But in reality, I mean, this was a woman who, you know, in in my book, I talk about how the violence of slavery and the difficulties of slavery in many ways kind of primed her to Mm -hmm. do this difficult work of the work of freedom, right? So... She was someone as a child ripped away from her parents at the age of five. She's forced to go and work for someone else. You know, so we're talking about a child who doesn't yet have her adult teeth, right? Taken from her mother. Her father was living um, 10 miles away. They were owned by different people on different farms. And she, at the age of five, is tasked with, emptying the muskrat muskrat traps of her new sort of temporary owner. So I, I always sort of think about a five-year-old's hand trying to pry open a trap in February on the eastern shore of Maryland when it's cold and snowy and rainy and removing the dead carcass of a rodent and bringing it to the owner for, for their pelts, right? This is the kind of work she's doing as a five, five, exactly. As a five-year-old. And the work would, she was expected to sort of learn how to do domestic work. And she wasn't so great at that in the beginning. She, no one told her. No one taught her. She was little. She was, um, she was required to take care of babies. She was so small when she was required to hold children and, and take care of them, keep them quiet, that she had to sit on the floor because she just wasn't big enough to hold a child. She was a child taking care of a baby. And as she grew older, she um, 
was forced to work in the fields. And on the eastern shore of Maryland, she was doing, she was harvesting flax and she was helping with uh, loading wagons and just the most kind of physical, difficult labor. And it's during this time her body is developing and becoming strong in a way. Of course, she didn't know it at the time, but it's sort of preparing her physically to deal with what the the underground would require. She also, her time kind of doing agricultural work, she learned a lot about nature. She learned a lot about herbs and, you know, what was edible, what was medicinal, which would later on be important for her. And so all of these things that were traumatic and a part, as I said, of the violence of slavery would later pay off for her. But what do we know about, and that's great, but what do we know about how she made it? Yeah, she, um, you know, so here's the thing. She didn't, she never gave many names. She couldn't. Yeah. Um, she wanted to sort of keep people's identity um, protected. Her first attempt at running away was actually thwarted. So she was going to run off with her brothers, uh, Ben and Henry. And they had gotten wind that they were going to be sold. And um, they attempted to run away. And at some point, this is the fall of 1849, and at some point, her brothers, um, they get scared. And they make the decision, you know, it's better to return and deal with the uncertainties of, of slavery, the certain punishment that was going to come. Then to to do this, to go, they're illiterate, they have no compass, they don't know where they're going, right? How do we even know where a Pennsylvania is? And so they return, and Harriet did not want to return at this point, but they, they literally, like, drag her back. And it's shortly afterward that she decides to go out on her own. It's kind of that moment where she decides that a man is never going to tell her what to do, control her body in that kind of way. And so she is given um, information about certain people that will help her along the way, um, reverends and farmers who would open their barns, open their wagons for short rides. And it was very um, similar to what we see in the film, you know, the kind of follow the river, follow the North Star, those, you know, that actually is not, fictitious at all. Okay. Um, And so over the course of years that she's going back and forth and rescuing people, she builds and becomes part of a network of people doing the work of freedom. She's building it as well as, as well as she is. She's building it. She's um, in many ways, she's safeguarding it. She'll give that information to other people who ask about it. But for the most part, she, she has to be um, careful about that. She won't uh, allow people, sometimes she would force people to um, uh, uh, run in certain directions that were different from what she had, had wanted at first because of premonitions, because of um, concerns about um, her safety or the safety of others. But she was always very clear that her contacts on what would become known as the underground had to remain um, private, discreet, 
because she had to keep going back and forth. And if one person gave her up, one person, then the entire operation would be blown. So, you know, we, we know that Tubman rescued between 60 and 70 people. And we know that she made at least 13 trips to and from Maryland. And she never lost one person. Not one, not one person died. Not one person returned, said, I can't do it. Now a couple of them tried to return. And she forcefully at gunpoint says, you are not going back. Because it puts all of us at risk if you start to go back. It puts everyone at risk. It puts the entire operation of the underground from the eastern shore of Maryland up through Philadelphia. And at that time, you know, there's a jail sentence. There's a fine and, and possible imprisonment that came with aiding and abetting a fugitive. The law said that. So it wasn't simply, oh, I'm going to help this person who's getting away. You are actually breaking the law. Mm-hmm. And so... Just as if you were helping a prisoner now. Exactly. You are breaking the law. And it's your, actually your responsibility to report it. Right. So it was imperative that things remain discreet. And she <laughs> she managed to do it, sometimes tra- by force. Tra- traveling... At night, traveling during the winter was helpful. Traveling, leaving Saturday nights, taking advantage of the press at the time would not print until Monday so she could have the time. What are some of the other tactics that she used? Yes, she would sometimes um, uh, wear disguise. She would disguise herself sometimes as an elderly woman, um, sometimes as a man. Um, Anything that was not um, uh, known about her. There were, at this point, there's already, you know, wanted ads by year one. There wanted ads out for her. So she had to sort of disguise herself. Um, But they didn't know who they were looking for. They did. They did know that. They did. There were, so there are some differences between the way it's um, described in the film versus um, what we know as historians. But no, there were ads out for for Harriet. Her name was Araminta Ross. So within uh, a month or two of her first escape, there's an ad out with a hundred dollar reward for the return of Minty. So they knew who they were looking for. Um, there was, you know, it's the, the sort of discussion about, well, who's this Moses person that you know, she, she, she was called many things, Moses, um, general, um, you know, she picked up lots of kind of nicknames, but for the most part, the people on the Eastern shore, especially the enslaved people, they knew um, who Harriet Tubman was. And, um, Another reason that she had to be super careful every time she returned to Maryland. And there's times when she almost or encounters former owners. Yeah. There's, there's one moment where she, um, it's kind of genius. She would often take the train back to Maryland. And this is actually um, captured on the film. And we think, wait a minute, we have this sort of image of her always in the, you know, the woods or through the swamps. And um, 
she that was required on the way back to Philadelphia. But who's looking for a runaway well dressed on a train? Right. No, <laughs> nobody is. Right. <laughs> exactly. So she would some she would um, scrounge up the money for train fare and she would head back to Maryland on the train. And there's this moment where she's on the train and she sees um, a former owner, but also people who knew her owners. And she knew immediately she was, she was dressed differently. So she kind of hid, but she had a newspaper and she, Harry Tubman couldn't read. So she, but she picked up the newspaper to kind of hide Behind it, hopefully the newspaper was right side up, right? Because <laughs> I'm saying she <laughs> right, read, right? And that would be a, a, a sort of giveaway. That, that would be a dead giveaway, yeah. So there were these sort of moments where, you know, capture was always on her mind. But once again, we go back to this notion of of Tubman's optimism. She that really God was believed. With her. Yeah, she God believed. will take care of me. She did. She believed that God would take her where she needed to be, that he would protect her, that he would protect the people that she carried along the underground with her. And I think about the first excursion back to Maryland, once she'd been free for some time. It's interesting. We don't think about the resources that she needed to make these trips. She needed money. Yeah. And so she would spend her summers part of the spring in Philadelphia and Cape May, New Jersey, doing domestic work. And she'd basically stack her dough. Like she would just save her money. And she needed that money for train fare, for um, disguises, for to pay other people off, to give gifts to those people who were still a part of the underground. This wasn't free. No. And so she would work for months, save this money, and then head back in the wintertime Fall, winter was her preferred time. And and that's actually opposite of what, when we think about the history of runaways or those who are fugitives, they actually, the majority tended to escape during the summer because the weather was better, right? And there are more options in terms of food and um, hunting, fishing, those kinds of things. But um, Tubman didn't do that. She actually preferred the winter. Um, she preferred sort of that time between Christmas and New Year where... There's things were a little more relaxed and it was also usually the time before the sale of enslaved people took place. Um, and so that was her kind of, with few exceptions, that was her kind of routine on one of her first trips back. She goes back um, to get her husband. And I think, you know, in the film, as well as in my book, I, I thought it was, really important to highlight Harriet Tubman as a woman who loved, as a woman who was loved, um, as a wife. Because we often sort of just think about her as this almost asexual um, older woman without relationships. And that was not the case. She married a man named John Tubman in 1844. And, um, Although their relationship probably was not the smoothest of relationships, she loved him. He was a free man. So to make a decision as a free man to marry an enslaved woman, you know, I always sort of think about that. Like, 
Harriet had something special. If this man, I mean, to sure. to make the decision to marry a woman who, and he was way younger than her. He was no, no. The first, the first husband was not significantly significantly okay. younger. Okay, her second husband was younger, but to make the decision to marry someone who, by the law, when she has your children, those children will be enslaved. Right, you are in essence turning over the freedom of your unborn children the minute you make that decision. So what kind of man makes the decision to do that? And I'm, I'm more like, well, what was it about the woman that made him want to do that? And clearly there was something about Harriet that was, um, that brought them together. But when she left, she left him and he really, you know, in some ways the film and um, the, the, um, my book, the sort of biographies of Tubman are somewhat different. And I kind of, um, I understand that. I understand the reason for, at least in the film, to want to depict black love amongst enslaved people, we, we don't see that. You know, we often think, oh, families were destroyed. No one loved anybody. It was, you know, um, but that's not the case. And so I appreciated, at least in the film, this really kind of tender depiction between a husband and a wife. But that wasn't really the case, right? <laughs> that wasn't really the situation between John Tubman and Harriet Tubman. And when she returned... He was completely uninterested in her, and he actually refused to meet her. And she came to, to Maryland. She went into hiding and sent word to her husband saying, I've returned. It's about 18 months later. I've returned. I'm here for you. And he won't even go see her. He sends a note with someone else and says, um, I don't want to see you, and I'm married and she's a free woman, right? So, mm. ex right? That's the moment where you're like, okay. Mm. Harriet just traveled over 100 miles back into the jaws of slavery <laughs> to get her, quote, get her man. And she gets there and she's been replaced. And... She, in her own kind of recollections later on, she says that, you know, whatever sort of sorrow she had kind of evaporated and she got mad and she was ready. She said she was basically ready to fight. She said she was ready to go into their cabin and basically turn it out. She wanted to see him. She wanted to see the new woman. Um, and then she kind of gathered herself and her anger, and she understood that she couldn't make any kind of noise, ruckus. No one wanted attention. That would destroy everything. But also that if he had made the decision to let her go, then she needed to let him go. And I think it's one of those moments, a portal into the intimacy Mm. The intimate lives of someone like a Tubman who, while she's going through forests and saving people and running from slave owners, she's also dealing with, you know, the issues of rejection, of emotional love. And we don't often pair that with the lives of enslaved people. 
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. The head injury that people talk about happens in her youth and leads to her having visions. Can you talk about that part of it? Yeah, she's, um, and, and this was, I actually thought, um, this moment in Tubman's life is kind of a game changer for her. Mm-hmm. She's a teenager at the time. She's on her way to do errands at the sort of local store. And she crosses paths with um, two people. One, uh, an enslaved man who we're not quite certain where, what he was doing or what was going on, but he was um, running. We don't know if he was running away permanently, running away from the overseer. We don't know, but he was running. And an overseer was chasing him. And they all kind of crossed paths at this general store. And he 
this overseer mandates that Harriet grab him and help put this man down, help mm. subdue him. Maybe this was a hint about who Tubman would become, but she refused to do it. And when she refused to help, this kind of moment of, of hesitation allowed the man to get away. And so the overseer was so angry, he picked up like a, it was a two pound metal weight mm. on a counter mm. and he hurls it in the direction of this fugitive. Doesn't hit him, it hits her in her skull, fractures her skull. She's bleeding, she's unconscious. They take her out of the store. They take her back to uh, her home. She doesn't even have a bed. So they lay her on the, the bench of a, of a weaving loom. Mm. And of course, she gets no medical attention because it's the 19th century. She's enslaved on the eastern shore of Maryland. And she talks about how she was forced to go back to work almost immediately, that she's in the fields and literally can't see because blood is dripping in down her face and her eyes. And, and so the Trump, once again, we see the violence of slavery there, but this is also the moment where she begins to have visions and she basically develops a condition. Maybe we would call it epilepsy today, but she would kind of fall into these, trance is a, a sort of state of unconsciousness mm. and she couldn't be sort of roused from them. And during these moments, these episodes, she would have visions and a kind of intuition or hints about life. And she always attributed that to God. And she talked about this later on in her life. So, and sometimes those visions would say, turn left, don't use that bridge or Danger's coming. Um, other times it would be about the health and, and well-being of her family members. So she, we often don't think about Tubman as a woman who lived with a disability. Mm. You know, we owe, once again, the kind of superhero woman. But she lived with this condition for the entirety of her life. Headaches, um, uh, nausea, just... Um, the illness that came with these kind of seizures. And we really do need to square that, that here's a woman we see as a superhero, but here's a woman who also lived with a disability. As an historian, you very much want to take her down from being seen as a superhero, right? And like, let's see the real person. Is that yeah, I mean, part I of think, the thesis? I think that helps us. It's just more legible for people, you know, to kind of think about her. I'm going to do that with Tubman, with everybody else, an Abraham Lincoln, a George Washington, that um, ultimately they are people, special people, you know, clearly people who made major kind of differences or impacts in society. But I'm more interested as a, I'm a social historian. So I'm, I want to know what people's everyday lives were like yeah. in the 19th century. I want to know what she ate for dinner. I want to know um, what her marriage was like, what it meant to have children that could be taken from you at any moment, what it meant to not be able to have children. She did have a child. Did she not? She did. She adopted a child. She never had a biological child, but later on, after emancipation, after the war was over, she adopted um, a young girl, but she never had a child with, with John Tubman. 
there's a story about Margaret. Is that who you're referring to? Who she rescues from slavery, but Margaret's daughter famously says, no, you did not rescue her. She was fine. You kidnapped her. And Tubman is saying, no, this is my daughter. Right. Well, she treated her like a daughter, but she was really a, a, a niece of sorts. Um, and there is, you know, once again, this is no one lives a life without um, criticism. And so there were family members who felt as though um, Tubman had taken this young girl away um, out of the eastern shore of Maryland, that she wasn't actually um, enslaved or that her parents hadn't actually given permission for her to leave. Um, And, you know, that's still to be disputed. I think it speaks to it's very different from everything else we know about Tubman, but later on, she actually adopts a baby girl named Gertie, her and her second husband, um, Nelson Davis. That's like another thing about Tubman. We call her Harriet Tubman, but on her tombstone, it says Harriet Tubman Davis. Mm. She married again. She, and you know, there's a section of my book called call me Mrs. Davis. And um, of course it's a sort of play on, you know, Janet Jackson's, you know, um, um, you know, call me Miss Jackson. Uh, but this is um, more about the respect that came, or at least that one hoped came from the institution of marriage and what that meant, especially for enslaved women who could not have legal marriages. You know, what is, what's a name mean? Well, we know it, it meant quite a bit to enslaved people, uh, but especially to enslaved women. What does it mean to be Mrs. Somebody? And so she went by Mrs. Davis for nearly 50 years. Is it hard to be an historian trying to dig into the lives of these people who there's not a lot? I mean, there's there's must be tremendous gaps. Yeah that you can't fill in that we, we didn't, we don't know a lot about her life or these people's lives. Yeah. Um, you know, I think historians expect to have to dig, you know, we're part kind of detective, part nerd, part, I don't know, um, introvert. Cause we like to be in places alone for long times looking at documents. But I think those of us who choose to do the, the history or to tell the history of enslaved people in particular, black people, but enslaved people, uh, we know kind of that the archives are not our friends. They don't, uh, represent the stories of enslaved people in part because they were forbidden from learning to read or write. So mm-hmm. these normal places, these normal archives that have the stories, the documents, the wills of enslavers, we have to read through those carefully, those documents carefully in order to tease out the stories of our people who were there. And, you know, I, sometimes people will say, well, they're, you know, they're hidden. Your subjects are hidden in the archives or, or they're hidden in the, in the margins. And I say, I don't really think they're hidden. I like to think of them as just waiting to be found. Hmm. And I feel super, 
I don't know, honored, privileged to be able to recover their lives and to to bring them. It's not just about wanting to tell stories about black people or black women. It's about me sort of forcing it's the say your name of say her name. Right. Of the 19th century, that we must reclaim these lives and then insert them into the narrative of American history in order for us to have something close to a correct narrative. We know that she carried a gun. Mm -hmm. Do we know if she ever used it beyond pointing it at somebody? Do we know if she ever fired it? We don't have any um, documentation. Did she kill a man? There's there's no documentation that she killed anybody. Um, I'm going to leave that there. I mean, you know, she was prepared to. I think that matters. Even if we don't have information that says she did this, she did that. um, She clearly, she carried it for protection and she was willing to use it. And I think that matters. I think that does matter. I also think, man, you made 13 trips in and out. You never had to kill anybody to keep like, or at least really hurt somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot someone in the foot. Something. <laughs> Not kill them. Just, you know, do something. I'm One can only, you know, that would be speculation, which I'm willing, I'm as a historian. And I think when we tell the stories of people like Tubman and other folks who were illiterate, didn't tell their, leave their stories behind. There, there are moments where we do have to speculate, right? But in this instance, we don't, we really don't have anything that tells us sure. or gives us the right to say, yeah, she sure. shot someone. Um, in some ways, it makes it more powerful that she didn't. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. <laughs> um, let's go into the period that the movie, I don't know why, sort of leaves out where she joins the Union Army as a scout and a spy, which is extraordinary. I mean, just, and then it leads armed expeditions. I mean, let's talk about what, what, is, what is actually she doing there? Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that people really don't know about Tubman. Like people think they know Tubman. Uh, I was, my son watches these little videos called TikToks or whatever they make them. And he was showing me some little TikTok that was done on some supposed college campus. I don't know which one where somebody was going around and asking college students, um, who is this person? And they had a picture of Harriet Tubman and the students were like, I don't Rosa Parks. Like they just didn't, I know it was kind of, kind of sad, but once again, we don't know the authenticity of this TikTok. but the point that was trying to be made was that, um, they didn't necessarily know her visually, but then when someone said, do you know who Harriet Tubman was? They said, Oh yeah. Underground railroad. Right. And that's kind of it. So when you move forward and you talk about, did you know that Harriet Tubman actually served in the military, was the first woman to lead an armed expedition? Uh, no, no most people don't. It's left out of the story. And in some ways, you know, we have to ask the question, why don't we talk about that? Why is that not in most history textbooks? And in some ways it speaks, it's against everything else we know about Tubman, right? If we don't have her as someone killing people with guns and she's just kind of peacefully leading people through the forests to Pennsylvania, then that creates a certain kind of hero that works in an American narrative. Mm-hmm. But then when you have a black woman who's still enslaved, 
literally, when she goes down to South Carolina, still a fugitive, technically, she is asked by the governor of Massachusetts, how about you go down and help the Union troops? If anybody's going to be a scout, if anybody's going to have the wherewithal and the knowledge to be able to learn the terrain and move about without detection, it's you. And she agrees. She agrees to do it. She goes down to South Carolina with the intention of being a scout and a spy. And of course, at first, when she gets there, that's not the job given to her. She's given the sort of traditional um, jobs that were given to women, helping with um, uh, distribution of food and of she becomes a nurse. And her time as an enslaved person, knowing about medicinal roots and what have you, that became really important because medicine was always in short supply. It wasn't until sort of a little bit later, her time in, in South Carolina, where she was given permission to go do what Harriet Tubman did. And she had won over the sort of local folks and she gathered information, of course, from enslaved and free black people in South Carolina, enough so that in June of 1863, she leads the Combahee River raid. This is my favorite part of the story. (laughs) I mean, to think about a woman who's slightly over five feet tall, right? In charge of a military expedition that they figured out where the torpedoes have been placed strategically along the river. How do they know this? Well, they get information from enslaved people who are around because they're the ones who planted the torpedoes, right? And they make their way under the cloak of darkness and they pull up their, there's a Confederate stronghold there. And by the time dawn breaks, Union troops are there and, This is a sort of important victory for the Union, but it's also important because it's a moment when Tubman literally emancipates between seven and eight hundred people. There's seven to eight hundred people enslaved who are still living behind Confederate lines, who are planting rice, the one of the most dangerous and difficult forms of agricultural labor. And she comes and they emancipate them. They bring them to the Union troops. And so when people ask, well, how many people did Tubman really set free? You add those. I mean, we're looking at close to a thousand when you're talking about, you know, seven, eight under there. And-, and this this part of the story. It's dramatic because they they arrive, they start these bombs attacking the Confederacy and enslaved people see what's going on and come running toward her. Right. And she says, this is one of the most amazing sights that I have ever seen in my life. Like, just can you. Yeah, they you know, it's. Literally, it's dawn. So it's still it's June in South Carolina and men and women who are enslaved are preparing to start their day harvesting rice. That, of course, means wading through marshy waters, dealing with the mosquitoes that carry malaria, just with extremely hot temperatures. And they're prepared for another day of backbreaking labor. And they look up and they see 
men and Harriet Tubman dressed in blue. They knew what blue uniforms meant at that point. They couldn't read, they couldn't write, but they knew what the men in blue, who they were. And it was that moment they realized this is our, this is our chance. This is our opportunity to take freedom, you know? So clearly Harriet opens the door for them, but they had to take it. You know, and I think we have to remember that too. There's some who um, could have been too frightened to, you know, what will happen if, if this doesn't work out, my owner would be mad, what have you. But they had to have the wherewithal to take it. And they did. And Tubman later on says in her, in her recollections, she says that one of the saddest things about that moment was that she couldn't fit everyone on the boats, that the boats were full, they were brimming over, and they started to, to move away from the shores, and they had to leave people there. And these people are crying, and they're basically saying, you know, let me come, there's no room. And she has to assure these folks, there will be other boats, we promise we will come back, you won't be left here. But she, she talks about that moment, and of course she must have thought about the sisters that she lost to the slave trade, right? That she lost um, three sisters who were... What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly. It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Sold when she was a young child into the cotton belt of the nation who she never saw again. And it was that moment, that reminder of, you know, what does freedom mean if slavery sits right by it? What does her freedom mean? And so while this was a kind of joyous occasion, there was also, you know, it was also tempered by knowing she couldn't take everyone. Hmm. She goes on to purchase property. <laughs> how did she purchase property? Do we know how much it cost? Yeah. And uh, uh, how is she treated mm. in her older years? Is she revered? Did people say, oh my God, this woman did all this stuff? Or was the history kind of forgotten until she dies? 
Yeah, I think we know so much about Tubman's life, or we at least talk about Tubman's life kind of up to the Civil War, and then it's almost like she disappears. Like, that's the end of life when, no, she lives another half a century. So it's, you know, those years are also really important when we think about who Tubman was, who then Tubman Davis became. Um, Right during her time on the underground, she did, she started to kind of, Small speaking circuit, you know, it's kind of like um, I, I I think about this as a as a writer, as a professor, you know, my, my side hustle is going around and giving talks. And, you know, what do you do when you get a little money when you do these talks? And that's what Tubman needed to do to raise funds, especially as um, the fugitive slave law made things much sort of tighter, more difficult to move around. She couldn't move around um, in anonymity. People knew who she was. So in New England, in New York, she's um, out on, on the lecture circuit. And people in abolitionists in New England, they knew who she was. And so William Seward, who was a, a senator, he was an abolitionist, he basically offered her a parcel of land and a home for a very, very cheap price. I believe it was $25, something like that. Um, or no, it was several hundred dollars. She made a $25 um, deposit. Do we know how much, like how many acres she had? Yeah, she, it was it was multiple acres. It, it was actually more than one structure. It was uh, a home, um, barns, um, enough uh, acreage that would allow her to later on grow um, food um, for sale later on. Wow. So it was significant. Wow. Um, this is in New York. This is in New York, in upstate New York. And so, what city? What town? So she um, basically set up shop in Auburn, New York, which was a, a sort of smart place um, geographically for. Tubman to be, there were lots of abolitionists in that area. So there was some relative safety because she's still a fugitive, right? It's um, 1859, 1860. The war hasn't even begun when this offer is is made to her at first. Um, And at this time, she's going back and forth between Canada, where she's shuttled many of her family members and friends to, um, so that they are, it's really the only place where fugitives were safe. The the long arm of American law could not reach them there. So she's going back and forth between um, Auburn, New York, Canada, New England, and she's making these, um, uh, giving these talks, making these presentations, making a little money. And this is how she ends up meeting really well-known people like Frederick Douglass, right? Like Sojourner Truth. Like, you know, people it, that... It is mind-blowing <laughs> to think about Harry Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, like, having a conversation. Can you imagine what that sounded? Like, what would that what conversation do do? have been? <laughs> like, you know? Whitey sucks, I know. I know. <laughs> Tell me about it, girl. <laughs> Drop those fugitives off in my house. I'll help them get to Canada. Right. You know, and, and actually... That actually did happen. So because Douglas was living um, in Rochester, New York at the time, um, there's this moment where uh, 
Harriet Tubman brings a large number of fugitives. And around the same time, Douglas is talking about how like 11 fugitives end up on his doorstep in Rochester and he helps ferry them to Canada. So yeah, they're like working together. They're, they're on this underground together. They are activists. And what's really interesting when we think about Douglas talks about Harriet Tubman later on in life when her recollections were um, written down in the form of her narrative, Douglas actually gave comments about her. And he talked about how they were both fugitives, right? But that his life was one that had been out in the public with all of these accolades and with attention and, um, you know, and fame that came with it. And the only thing that Tubman got was perhaps a hug and the love and the respect from the people she ferried to freedom, that she was behind the scenes, but she was doing the work of freedom. They both were, just in very different ways. So he spoke highly of of Tubman, but it also reminds us of how the work of what we would call kind of 19th century social justice activism was being done differently by different people. Someone like Douglas, who's the most photographed man of the 19th century. And then someone like Tubman, who is, um, who had to be unknown for a while. Mm. Um, You make me wonder how many trips to the South did she make that we don't know about, right? Like, I mean, you know, she, surely she didn't brag about all of them, right? No, I mean, she couldn't. And were the people, the people who she rescued, are they lost to history? Are they making their own proclamations of like, this woman changed my life, our family's life? Right. Very few people act, called Harriet Tubman out by her name, in part because, the you know, it's sort of like once a fugitive... You are always um, uncertain about your surroundings, even when the war is over, right? So her family members, for for instance, they changed their last name. Um, they're not, you know, they change, they become uh, the Stewart family. And many enslaved people do that because they're fugitives. They don't want to be found or traced. Um, and then to call someone out like Harriet Tubman would basically once again put her life in danger. But we do know that she rescues so many people, sends them to to Canada. And even to this day, there's a, a good number of um, Tubman descendants who live in the New York area, who live in the Maryland area, um, as well as um, those who were connected to her in Canada, in St. Catharines, Canada. Um, just to expand... Um the lens a bit we had uh nicole hannah jones here Mm. recently and she talks about america as a slaveocracy and the continued links and connections and legacy of slavery that infects almost everything in america um is that how you see it um i don't As a historian who studies early America, like the founding of the nation and before that, you can't separate it from slavery, right? You can't separate it from the trauma of it, 
from the violence inflicted upon black bodies, you, you just can't at least and not tell an accurate version of American history. I think that as someone who teaches and writes about this time period, the 18th and the 19th century, you know, what I want to do is to, to tell this story in a way that resonates with people alive today, but also helps us sort of think about the vestiges of slavery, you know, how we see the leftovers, if you will, how that plays out in our society today. And I think that's the moment where history becomes useful. It becomes something that guides policy. It becomes something that helps us move closer to an anti-racist society. I mean, I think about so much of what America is, is the world's greatest power, right? The superpower economically as well as militarily. And it starts to ascend to that because of cotton being the most profitable crop on the globe. Mm -hmm. And we've got several million people working for free. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like that would surely be, I mean, so America does not become this global economic power without millions of people working for free right. for hundreds of years. Without exploitation, period. Right. right. So, I mean, there's there's no America becoming the country it is without that basis. I don't think we, we can't say, of course, America wouldn't be what it is without all of that. But I also think there's a trap with that too. There's a suggestion that America would never have moved forward kind of financially or technologically without the use of slave labor. And I'm, you know, I'm just not comfortable. I, I'm not comfortable with that because it suggests that, that that exploitation was the only way that um, America could expand and grow. I'd like us to imagine what expansion would look like if it didn't involve genocide or it didn't involve taking land from its inhabitants, if it didn't involve violence. So this whole idea of kind of settler colonialism, of, of coming in and taking um, the resources and then exploiting a group of people to do the work, to move the nation forward. That's what we did, of course. But I'm, I just, I'm not willing yet, maybe it's the optimism in me, to think that that's the only way a nation can grow and develop. Okay, but it is, it is. It's what we did. It is what we did. And we can't trace the growth of America to the lone global superpower without that being a huge part of it. Indeed. As well as the cultural dominance that we have over the world it, it, the the black white the, the presence of black people just all the cultural genius that we have the tension of black and white people trying to get along um that's a huge part of it i mean yeah. it's a gigantic part of our legacy it is and and you know we can make direct connections between 
the um, injustice of slavery, right? And the ways in which black and brown people have been treated in this nation and in the 18th and 19th century, in the 20th century, and connect that to today. That That's not, um, if you read, that's not difficult, right, to do. Um, and I'm just hoping, at, I don't know, I'm hoping that at some point we really, as a nation, invest in that history invest in it and think about it as a way to change our future, right? It's just making me think about Ibram Kendi's most recent Mm -hmm. book um, on, you know, on anti-racism and that if we don't accept everything you've just said, right, about how this nation was formed and what we've become because of the way we were formed, if we don't accept that, encounter it, hold on to it, but then rebuke it, and move in a different direction than I don't, the future is too, too grim for me. Luckily I'm a historian, so I get to hang out in the past <laughs> and not think so much about the future. I, 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 I was just one last time. I just want to go back to this notion of Tubman as a sort of superhero in that no one else was doing this. I mean, you know, Frederick Douglass did his amazing work, but there's no one else who said, okay, I'm just going to subvert this by just stealing people away and taking them to freedom. Like, just screw it. Like, I'm just going to go do that. Actually, as a, a, a sort of, was a woman, and as what we would call a, a, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, no. Like, no one, at least we have not yet uncovered, uncovered the stories. Yeah. of Because once again, I, we have to remember, these are folks who did not want to be known, right? right. And worked to stay out of history. But as far as it goes right now, as a historian who studies black women, who studies this time period, nobody was putting it down like Harriet. (laughs) She, you know, she was the only one who was like, okay, you can write a newspaper and you can give your talks and you can raise the money. All this is important for, you know, ending slavery. But like, I'm gonna go get these brothers and sisters. And I'm going to come bring them along and I'm going to bring them some shoes and I'm going to bring them some clothing and we'll work out what happens once they get to Philadelphia and or Canada. But I'm actually going to go do the physical work of extracting enslaved people from their enslavers and helping them find liberty like that social justice warrior. Thanks to Professor Dunbar for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It helps and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.